Hey, good morning, church. It's great to see you guys. And before we get started, you, what you need to know about me is that I am a lifelong Dallas Cowboys fan, so I'm on cloud nine. I want you to know, in case you aren't a football fan, what we witnessed last night was football's version of finding Sasquatch. A Dallas Cowboys playoff victory. Super excited. Hey, if you're here for the first time, thank you for being here. And if you're online, those of you at True Worth, thank you for joining us today. Now, as ministers of the church, we are called to comfort the afflicted. But every now and then, we get the opportunity to afflict the comfortable. And so that's exactly what I'm going to do right now. I want to make somebody just a little uncomfortable. Nathan, you're in the front row. Come on up here. Come on. Nathan, say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. Everybody say hi to Nathan. Hi. Here, have a seat. Let's, let's, let's talk. Get comfortable. All right. Okay, Nate, so I'm, I'm curious. Think about your house. Think about whenever you have guests over at your house. What are some of the kind of the unspoken rules or expectations that you have for guests while they're in your house? These are things that you don't necessarily tell them, but you just kind of expect, okay, they're, they're going to do this or not do this. What's, what's at least one? I'd say most of the guests that come over are friends of my son. So I'm expecting that they're going to pick up after themselves whenever okay. they leave. Hey, that's reasonable. That's reasonable. All right, so go with me on this. Let's just say you, you invite me and my family over to your house for dinner. Okay. And we have a good time. We, we, have, we have dinner. We visit. It's, just, it's a fun evening. And then as, as we leave, I say, hey, Nate, thank you for inviting us over. We had a great time. And you say, hey, Chris, thanks for coming. We, we enjoyed having you over. You know, come, come by anytime." And I say, okay. And then I go home. And then about a week later, I start thinking about what you said. Come by any time. <laughs> I say, you know what, Nate? I'm going to take you up on that. And about a week later, I show up at your front door about 9 o'clock at night on a Thursday night, knocking on the door. And all I really want to do is just come in, sit on your couch, veg, watch the game, maybe eat something out of the fridge. How might you respond then? Uh, probably not answer the door. <laughs> <laughs> but you said come by any time. Yeah, I, I did say that, but it's probably not fully intended. <laughs> <laughs> you say that, but it's, it's meant to be interpreted within a certain reasonable understanding, right? True, true. Okay, thanks, Nate. You can have a seat. Everybody, give them a, a round of applause for coming. So, so this is how we tend to think about hospitality in our context. There, there's these rules that we expect people to live by, right? Now, I'm the same way. I've got my own set of rules. And just so you know, if you're a guest in my house, these are my rules. Don't block my car in the driveway. That drives me crazy. Knock on the door before you come in. I know that sounds simple enough, but believe it or not, there's some people that that rule just eludes them. They haven't figured it out. And the third one is this, very simple. Don't touch the thermostat. <laughs> you do those three things, and man, we're going to get along just fine. You break one of those rules, and my willingness to show you hospitality is going to start to go down just a little bit. But I I think we're all kind of in the same boat. Our context, we, we think about hospitality in these terms. So in your sermon notes, number one, 21st century hospitality is convenient and reciprocal. So think about, you know, most business people, salespeople, or even in relationships, 
hospitality, it's used as a way of creating a repeat customer or making a sale. Or even in relationships, hospitality is, is kind of used to, to leverage people. You know, I do a favor for you now, and the idea is that down the road, you're going to do a favor for me. Like so, in our context, hospitality is, is sort of transactional. It's kind of a, a form of currency, so to speak. But I'm curious, what, what about Jesus? How does Jesus interpret hospitality? So that's going to be our conversation today. I want us to look through the gospel and get a better understanding of how he interprets hospitality and compare that to how we view that same thing. So in your Bibles, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 10. And as you can see, we have people walking the aisles. If you need a Bible, let them know. Now, because this is the new year, if, if, uh, if you're still looking for some New Year's resolutions, if you're not already doing this, I want to invite you, let this be the year that you decide to be in the Word every day. Let this be that year and, and see how that changes your life. So I want to pick up there verse 25 in uh, chapter 10. And for the most part today, I'm going to be paraphrasing through the Scripture, but I want you to know where I'm pulling from. So Jesus is approached by a lawyer. And the lawyer asks him a question. He says, he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, right away, as soon as you hear that, sirens should be going off. Like, we've, we've got a problem here. Like, what's the question that he's asking? He's, he's asking, hey, what do I need to do to get my reward? Like, the question is all focused on himself, what, what he can do to better his situation. But Jesus, he entertains the question anyway. He says, okay, okay, so what's written in the law? How do you interpret the law? How do you read the law? And what you need to know is that the law that he's talking about, he's talking about the, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah. And, and the lawyer says, he says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's it. You got it. Now, for most of us, that we're, we're tracking along with that just fine. Yeah, I got you. But then Jesus follows it up with a directive. He says, now go do it. And that's where so many of us get lost. Like, think about New Year's resolutions. Why do, why do so many of them fail? Like, right now, the gyms, they are, they're packed. But in February, they're going to be a ghost town. Why? It's not because we don't know. It's not because we don't know that we need to eat right, that we need to exercise. It's not, it's not that we don't know those things. It's that we lack the discipline to follow through, to stay with it. So the story goes on, and, and I find the next part of the story a bit strange. So I imagine that at that point, Jesus feels like the conversation is over. He's answered the man's question, told him what to do, and Jesus is on his way. And as he's walking away, the lawyer hollers out, well, who's my neighbor? I want you to underline that verse. Who is my neighbor? And I want you to write that in a list that's titled, Things Not to Say to Jesus. Like, that's got to be one of the dumbest things he could have asked. Like, what is, what is he asking? Really, what he's asking is, hey, what's, what's the bare minimum? What's the least amount of work I can do to get into heaven? 
This, this reminds me of my first couple of years of college. I mean, this was, this was my approach. So when I was in college, I, I wasn't always a good student. There was a time that I had different interests. So when I was in college, especially my first two years, I had three very specific interests, hunting, guitar, girls. That was it, and it was in that order. I didn't care. I didn't care about grades. And I was, I mean, I was a master at doing this. Whenever the professor would hand out the syllabus at the beginning of the semester, and I was a master at deciphering that syllabus and figuring out, okay, what's the least amount of work I got to do here to get a C in this class? And I was okay with that. I was fine. That's what the lawyer is asking. He's asking Jesus, hey, how do I get a C following after God? What's the least amount of work I got to do? You see, the, the lawyer, he's, he's trying to put limits on his hospitality, the people that he's got to talk to, the people he's got to be nice to. He's trying to rein that in and really pin it down to know, okay, what's the, what's the least amount of work I got to do? But you see, for Jesus, hospitality, it has nothing to do with convenience, with mutual benefit, or with, with lowering the standards. In your sermon notes, number two, for Jesus, hospitality is reckless and radical. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of knowing who Jesus is and what he would do after that conversation. So looking back, we can realize, yeah, that was a, that was a pretty dumb thing for that lawyer to ask. So I imagine Jesus at this point, he's, he's working his way away from the man, and he hears that question, who is my neighbor? And I imagine Jesus just stops dead in his tracks. He turns look, and looks back at the man and he probably has this look of frustration on his face. And he says, okay, okay, you asked, here you go. And we get to the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus tells the story of a man who's been beaten and robbed and left for dead. And then three people walk past him, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. I know that it sounds like the makings of a really terrible biblical joke, but Jesus is serious here. He, he picks these three people carefully. You see, the, the lawyer who's asking the question, the lawyer is somebody who's an expert in the law. And what you need to know is that there, at this time, there's really no distinction between the religious law and the civil law. There's just the law. There's the Torah, and that governs everything, all religious and civil matters. So the lawyer, he's an expert at this. Just like the priest just like the Levites. So those two people in this story, they represent the lawyer. And the priest and the Levite, they, they walk past this man and they don't stop. They don't offer him any help. Now, I love the way Jesus tells the story because he doesn't, he doesn't give a reason why they don't stop. You know, maybe they were in a hurry. Maybe they were afraid of the man. Or maybe, just maybe, they felt like, you know, this man is where he is because it's his own fault. Like, these are the consequences of the choices that he has made. Whatever the case is, they legitimize walking past him and not stopping. And these are experts in the law. These are the people that know the law, but they don't obey the law. I, th I think this is a struggle for us sometimes. I, Sometimes I feel like our, our level of knowledge far exceeds our level of obedience. And I think the reason why Jesus doesn't tell why they didn't stop 
is precisely because there is no good reason. There's no reason why they should have kept walking and not stopped for that man. But then here comes the Samaritan. And the Samaritan not only stops, but the Samaritan cares for the person. Bandages up his wound, takes him into town, pays for the expenses, goes to the innkeeper and says, hey, look, I'm going to be back in a couple of days to clear the debt. Whatever debt this man has accrued, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take care of it. Now, to understand the full bite of that story, you have to understand a little bit about the Samaritans and how the, the Hebrew people viewed them. So the Samaritans, they, they, they used to be part of the Hebrew uh, tribe, but then a few hundred years before this, they had, they had split off. And they had their own temple, so they weren't coming to Jerusalem to make their sacrifice every year. And so because of that, the, the Jewish nation, they, they looked down their noses at the Samaritans. They, they, they looked at them with contempt. Like, you, you people, you aren't true Hebrews, because if you were, you'd be in Jerusalem. If you knew the law, you would come to Jerusalem and offer your sacrifice. So Jesus constructs a parable that uses the priest and the Levite to reveal the selfish nature of the question that the lawyer asked. And then Jesus says, which of the three acted correctly? And the lawyer, who at this point, he's probably becoming aware of his own sin, of his, of his mistake, he reluctantly says, the one who showed him mercy. But you see, even, even in the midst of him knowing his mistake, you, you can still see his pride here, right? Because he won't say the Samaritan. He won't even say his name. He doesn't say the Samaritan acted correctly. He says the one who acted correctly. And Jesus says, that's it. And now that you know, go do it. You see, the hospitality that's required whenever you follow Jesus, it's not a convenient thing. It's not an easy thing. It's not a comfortable thing. In your sermon notes, I have a, I have a T-chart there for you. Convenient Jesus on one side, real Jesus on the other. Now, rather than fill that out, I, I want you to take that and I want you to reflect on that this week. And I want you to answer that for yourself. I want you to wrestle with who is the convenient Jesus and who is the real Jesus? You see, the, the convenient Jesus will say, you stop and you help the person in need if you know the person. Or if you look like the person, or if you vote like the person, or if you're from the same place that that person is from, or you don't, you don't question their motives. You don't, you don't think that they are where they are because of their own choices. That's when you can stop and help the person. That's the convenient Jesus. The real Jesus is quite a different thing. The real Jesus offers no limitations, no equivocations. The real Jesus says, you see somebody in need, if you've got the ability to help them, you stop and you help them. If you've never been inconvenienced or if you've never felt uncomfortable following Jesus, might I suggest that maybe you're not following close enough. I'm gonna let that sit there. Just think about that. Now, in your Bibles, I want to flip back just a couple of books. I want to go back into the Hebrew Bible. I want to go to the book of Jonah. Jonah's an interesting story. And I'm sure a lot of people are, are familiar with this. Jonah is a prophet. God calls to go to Nineveh. 
Jonah doesn't want to go. He tries to hide. He gets swallowed by a fish. And for three days, he lives in the belly of a fish until he relents. Fish spits him up. He goes to Nineveh. Now, when I hear people talk about Jonah, the conversation always seems to center on the fish. Like, did that really happen? Did he, did he really spend three days in the fish? Like, how, how is that possible? If you read Jonah and that's the question that you're left asking, I want to suggest that you're missing the point of Jonah altogether. Just put that question off to the side. And what you're left with is something very powerful about who God is. We learn something very important about the hospitality of God when we read Jonah. You see, Jonah is one of the few prophets that God calls to go into a foreign land, to go speak to foreign people. Jonah doesn't want to go. And not only does he say no, he says, you know what, God, you say you want me to go here? I don't want to go there. So guess what? Not only am I not going to go there, I'm going to go here. I'm going to do the exact opposite of what you tell me to do. Why is he doing that? He's trying to hide. God said something that made him feel uncomfortable. God said something that he didn't understand. He couldn't, he couldn't wrap his mind around. And rather than deal with it, he runs. Now, how often do we do that? How often do we, we read something in Scripture that, that we don't understand or that, that, that challenges our convictions, our understanding. And rather than work through the challenge, what do we do? We, we close the Bible and we, we, we distance ourselves from it. We create that space. Or... Or we stay in the Bible, but we say, you know what? I, I can't deal with this right now. This, this doesn't match with what I believe. So I'm going to go somewhere else in the text, some, somewhere else that I feel a little more comfortable reading that doesn't challenge me. Or, you know, maybe, maybe it's not even in the Bible. Maybe it's just in your experience, in your day-to-day. You, maybe you've, you felt the, the tug by the Holy Spirit to go talk to somebody that you don't know. You know, maybe... maybe Somebody here today has felt that nudge to go do just that today. But then you, you start playing it out. You're like, okay, well, I don't know this person. Do they want me to go talk to them? Do they want to just be left alone? What am I going to talk to them about? Are they going to be friendly? Are they not going to be friendly? We start asking all these questions. We get all anxious about it. And we said, you know what? You know what? Next week. I really do need to get going. So next week, I'll go and, and say hi to that person. So Jonah, this is what he's doing. He's, he's, he's making excuses. He's trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to do to get away? So he boards a ship. He, he heads for Tarshish. And while he's there, he's trying to outrun the storm. The storm catches up with him anyway. And so, I mean, he's, he's a bit delusional. I mean, it, it's, it's a, it requires some delusion to think you can outrun an omnipresent God. But he's doing it anyway. The storm catches up. And And scripture says the storm is bad enough that the people on the ship, the sailors on the ship, were afraid. I mean, these are people who make their profession at the sea. These are people who are right at home at the sea. They've been through a number of storms. But this one's bad enough that they're afraid. And what do they do? What do they do? They right away, they start working together. They're trying to figure out what to do to right the ship. So they're throwing cargo off the ship. They're doing whatever they can for the sake of the whole. And while they're all working together, trying to make everything work, where's Jonah? Verse 5, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. 
and had lain down and was fast asleep. The storm hit. Everybody's trying to, trying to come up with a solution, but Jonah wants no part of it. He's got his head in the sand. He doesn't want to know. And they go and they approach him, and he's still resistant. He wants nothing to do with that problem. So what about Jesus? What, what did Jesus do in a similar situation? I want you to hold on to your place there in Jonah, because we're going to come back to it here in a minute. I want you to go to Luke chapter 8. It's almost the same scenario that we've read in Jonah. So here Jesus is. He's with his disciples. And they get on a boat and they set sail. And as they set sail, a storm hits. Just like in Jonah. And the storm is really bad, just like in Jonah. And these, these disciples, some of these disciples, these were fishermen. These were people who made their profession on the water, who had been through storms, just like the sailors in Jonah. And they're afraid, just like the sailors in Jonah. And while this is happening, where is Jesus? He's asleep, just like Jonah. So the disciples go and wake him up. And this is the part of the story that diverges from Jonah's. When Jesus becomes aware of the storm that's raging, he doesn't run away. He goes to the storm. In your sermon notes, number three, radical hospitality pays attention to the storms. You see, what, what we learn when we read the gospel is that Jesus is intimately connected with our pain, with our storms. And when we follow Christ, we're called to do the same thing, to, to be connected with other people in the midst of their storms. Now, I know this is difficult for a lot of us. Sometimes we, we're not really sure how to respond. If we know of somebody that, that's going through something terrible, that's experienced tragedy, or they've had a death in the family, and we, we don't know what to say. We're worried that, that if we try to talk to them, that we're going to do more harm than good. And so we don't talk to them at all. Or if we do talk to them, we talk to them about everything under the sun except the storm that they're dealing with. But you see, those places, that, that's exactly where Jesus camps out. And our scars, our wounds, our pain, that's where the light of Christ shines the brightest. Why? Because it's where we need it the most. And when we enter into those seasons of, of uh, pain, a tragedy in other people's lives, we get to be a part of the light of Christ shining in them. Now, it's hard to have a conversation about radical hospitality without talking about this next guy. This next man, he was a, he fully embraced this concept of radical hospitality. His entire ministry was built on that premise. Now, he was an ordained Presbyterian minister, but most people, they didn't know him by that profession. They knew him by another profession. Here he is. Fred Rogers. If you don't know, this is Fred Rogers. He had a show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. His ministry was powerful. I mean, it was all about welcoming the little ones, 
the ones with little voices, the ones who, at that time, the, the world had said, look, you don't have a voice yet. One day you will, but right now you don't. And he said, no, 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 you, you have a voice now. His ministry was all about welcoming them and then letting them know, like, you are loved. You are special. God loves you. So do I. If you, if you haven't done this already, I want to invite you, go check out the documentary that they did on him this past year. It's, it's pretty powerful. One of my favorite quotes from Fred Rogers was, he said it a number of times, but I, I, rem I remember him saying it after 9-11 when the towers fell. He said that he remembered when he was a kid and he would see a catastrophe or some sort of tragedy, he would ask his parents about it. He said his, his mom would tell him, always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. When bad things happen, there's always going to be those people who are running to the storm, not away from it. This is why I have so much respect for those of you that are in law enforcement or those of you that are firefighters. When, when the storm hits and our instinct is to turn and run, all of you, you run into the storm for the sake of somebody else. This is what following Christ is all about. It's the willingness to step in, to lean into the discomfort for the sake of somebody else, to be present in their pain. Now, I, I want you to imagine right now that the person that's sitting by you that you don't know, that right now that person is going through the worst day or the worst week or the worst season of their life right now. Now, on the surface, they've got a smile. You might have even said hi to them. You might have talked about the weather or the sports or something like that. But beneath that, that surface-level conversation, beneath that smile, there's a pain that's just too much for them to bear alone. And they're here because they're in need of hope. Now, the reality is, for at least one of you, and I'm willing to bet a number of you in this room right now, that's not imagination. That's reality. Right now, that's your experience. You're sitting by somebody who's in deep, deep pain. And you don't even know it. Like church, if we can get one thing right today, let it be this. Talk to the people that you don't know. And talk to them about things that matter. Don't just talk about the sports. Okay, Cowboys won today. Today, you can talk about sports. But tomorrow, talk about something else. Talk about things that matter. Talk about things that are real. Give people an opportunity to share with you. And when they do that, you listen. Look, for some of us, we have a lot of people in our lives that we can go talk to when things go south. But the reality is so many don't have that. So many don't have anybody speaking into their lives. And they're here because they are hungry for community. And you very well could be the light of Christ that needs to shine in their wound today. I beg you, please answer that call. So I want to go back to Jonah. I want to pick up where we left off. We're still in that first chapter. So after the sailors, they wake up Jonah, they start asking him questions because they want to know who he is. They want to know if he's responsible for the storm that they're dealing with. What does he say? What does Jonah say? There in verse, verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew, 
and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. That's it. That's why he was running. When they asked him about who he was, he spoke of himself as a Hebrew first, follower of God second. He placed a higher precedent on his nationality over his faith. That's why he ran. He hated the Ninevites. He thought they deserved God's judgment, not God's mercy. He couldn't understand that. They were horrible people, and he was a proud Hebrew. Now, to be fair, the Ninevites were horrible people. They did horrific things. But because Jonah placed a higher precedent on his nationality over his faith, he could not understand the hospitality of God. So he ran. Look, I get a lot of things wrong in my life. I've got a temper. I can be selfish. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of hangups that are going on within, within me. Like, I'm, I'm forever in process. God is always at the work of fixing me, and it'll take a lifetime and then some. But I hope, I hope that I get this right. I hope that whenever I die and people gather around at my funeral, I hope that the first thing that they say about me, before they say anything about me as a father or as a son or as a brother, as a, as a friend, as a coworker, before they say anything about me, that the first thing that they say about me is like, this is a man who tried to follow Christ. We have a nice little soundtrack, don't we? Oh, we found it. All right. <laughs> Welcome back. I hope I get that right. I hope the most important thing somebody can say about me is that I tried to follow Christ and that I tried to see the image of God in everybody that I came across. I hope I get that right. And I hope you do too. I hope you do. You see, when we think in those terms, hospitality is no longer mitigated by things like nationality or race or gender or ethnicity or culture, or any of those things, they don't matter anymore. If you, if you want to know if you qualify for the hospitality of God, I got a quick test for you. Everybody, I want you to take two fingers. Go ahead, go ahead, don't be afraid. Two fingers, stick them up in the air. Go ahead. Now take your head, take your head, ready? I want you to tilt it slightly to the left, just a little, just a little. Okay, now take these two fingers, put it right there. Do you feel something? If you do, congratulations, you qualify. Somebody said they didn't. Go see a doctor. <laughs> I'm worried about you. Like for most of us, I think we get that, though. I think we understand that. But the reason why I bring that up is there's an important implication that goes along with that. Is that, that rule, it doesn't just apply to me. It applies to everybody. One of my favorite songs that we do here is called Reckless Love. And man, that is a powerful declaration to talk about. There's no lie. There's no mountain. There's no obstacle. There's nothing that God's not going to crush to come after me. But I want to invite you to do something. The next time we sing that song here in worship, I want to invite you, as you make that declaration for yourself, keep your eyes open and look around the room and be aware of how many others are making that declaration at the same time. Because God's doing it for every one of us. Now, before any of you jump too quickly, 
And you take this conversation that we're having and you, and you throw it into the midst of the political conversation that's happening right now. Before you do that, I want you to pause. I want you to take that, the political conversation and just, just sit it over here for now. You can come back to it later if you'd like, but for now, leave it here. Now, while that conversation is ha happening, I want to ask myself some questions. And I hope you do too. I want to ask myself, how, how do I feel about the person? Not the people, not the group, not the crowd, not the country. How do I feel about the person who lives on the other side of the world? Can I see the image of God when I look in them? And if I can, how do I respond? How do I show that person hospitality? This is why I love working here at Pathway. Just so you know, this, this week marks 16 years that I've been serving here at Pathway. And I love being here because you get it. You see, while that conversation is, is happening, you're not waiting for an answer to decide how you're going to respond because you're already responding. From the, the houses that you build in Mexico, we have groups of people that for a long time now have been going into Mexico to build houses for people that otherwise wouldn't have it. And guess what? When those groups go down, we have Republicans and Democrats working together to show hospitality to somebody else. How about that? That's pretty remarkable. Well, think about the work that, that you had done over in Ethiopia and the work that you did whenever you became aware of the sex slave trade industry, that you said, you know what, that's not right. And you did something about it. You didn't wait. You did something about it. And birthday gift to Jesus, if, if this is your first time here, just know that we have this thing every Christmas called birthday gift to Jesus. And this year, you gave around $250,000 to be the hands and feet of Jesus throughout the world. And to date, almost $2 million. That is remarkable. And then there's the prison ministry. Like, if you don't know, we have this thing at Pathway called the prison ministry. And so you've got these incarcerated people that the world has said, you know what? You're no longer welcome. You no longer matter. You made a mistake, and you're going to spend the rest of your life paying for that mistake. And we have the prison ministry that says, no, no, that's not right. Like, you're not defined by your past. You're not defined by your mistakes. You still have a future. You got a beating heart. You're made in the image of God. God has got a plan for you. And I want to be a part of helping you find that plan. That's what radical hospitality looks like. Now, the last thing I want to say about this is this table right here, this table. If you're new to the faith or maybe you've been part of the faith for a while, but you're, you're not quite sure what, what happens here, like it's just something that we do every few weeks. We come up, we have the bread, we have the juice, and then we go on about our way. I want you to know that when you come to this table, you are confronted with one of the most powerful forms of hospitality in the world. In your sermon notes, number five, radical hospitality is dangerously selfless. So what happens here at the table? 
At this table, we are met by a man named Jesus who gives of himself freely and willingly. A man who, who gives of himself in a way that nobody asked him to, but in a way that he said, you know what, you need this. And he sat down at his table. He took the bread and he broke it. And he tells him, he says, this is my body that I break for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this, this is my blood that I spill for you so that you may know. And who gets to come? Who gets to come to this table? You see, this isn't my table. I'm not inviting you. Judy doesn't invite you. Pathway doesn't invite you. This is the Lord's table. He invites you. And who does he invite? So let's, let's take a look around the room. You got Judas, the man who at that moment was at the business of betraying Jesus. Jesus knows this. And he says, hey, Judas, come sit at my table. And then you have Peter, the proud disciple, who just hours later would deny Christ three times. Jesus knows this. And he says, hey, Peter, Peter, come sit at my table. And then there's a handful of disciples, the ones that when, when it mattered the most, when Jesus needed them the most, they would desert him out of fear for their own lives. Jesus knows this. And yet he says, hey, hey, come sit at my table. And after he leaves the table, he shows us the biggest answer to that question, who is my neighbor, as he offers forgiveness on the cross and as he welcomes the thief into paradise. Just as Jesus invited all of them, he invites us today. For every time that we've betrayed Jesus, he says, hey, you, come sit at my table. For every time we deny Christ, he still says, hey, come sit at my table. And for every time we, we run away from the calling of God on our lives, from every time we run out of fear or whatever the case is, Jesus still says, hey, come sit at my table. So this is what the Lord's table looks like. The question is, what does your table look like? See, the call isn't just to come and receive the mercy of Jesus and then go on about your way. The call is to come and receive the mercy, be transformed by the experience that you have here. Be transformed by this radical hospitality so that when you leave, you leave changed. You leave that whenever you go back into your respective tables at home, at work, out around the town with your friends, with people that you don't know, that they experience the hospitality of God that you experienced at this table so that they know that God loves them. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, God, we are humbled that you have a place for us at your table. And Lord, we thank you for your great sacrifice that has brought us to this place. We ask that you would bless this bread, that you would bless this juice. And as we partake it, may we remember your sacrifice that freed us from everything that binds us, that allows us to know freedom like never before, 
because of a relationship with your son, Jesus. So God, as those who come and partake, may we pause as we do so. And in remembrance, may we give thanks to you. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Never gonna let 
let me down. You're never gonna let me down. Will you stand and sing this with us, both here and at True Worth? Let's declare it right now. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down.
partaken in communion let us be reminded of why we gather together of the reason that we are here please join me as we read our mission statement as found on the screen the purpose of pathway church is to glorify God and to share the love and grace of Jesus Christ with as many people as we can and how shall we fulfill this purpose by ministering to spiritual, emotional, and physical needs, by providing Christian relationships in the family of God, and by providing the challenge for individual and collective spiritual growth. Now take what you have received and go share it with others that we might be the hands and feet of Christ. Amen, have a great week.